The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest for this episode is ultra-endurance athlete and full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate, Rich Roll. If you're familiar with the world of plant-based lifestyle and wellness, chances are you've heard Rich's popular podcast and maybe even read his book, Finding Ultra. If you have, then you know Rich is a pretty incredible individual with a fascinating life story. In this wide-ranging conversation, Rich and I talk about the dangers of food tribalism and the superficial divides between good food advocates who all generally want the same things, to improve their health and help the environment if they can. He also shares his views on the best way to eat and what he does to fuel his performance. Rich also shares his thoughts on how to build an authentic brand and talks about the importance of integrity and being honest if you want to truly reach people today. He provides a few tips and breaks down how he holds himself accountable and stays true to his personal brand, as well as lessons entrepreneurs in the food space can use to help establish their individuality and voice. We also get into Rich's backstory, and he shares in-depth details about how he went from being a high-powered entertainment attorney to the brink of bankruptcy after he gave up his career to find his passion. He shares the struggles he and his family had to overcome to get to the point of success he has reached today, and discusses what helped him get through it all. This is a conversation about breaking down barriers and sparking change in how we relate to one another and the world around us, through food and media alike. Rich has built his personal brand up from nothing and is more than happy to share his journey to help people along their own. I walked away from this conversation feeling inspired and empowered, and I hope you will too. Rich Roll, thanks for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to finally meet you. I've been following you for a very long time, and as we were talking about before the podcast, we talked on the phone and I've sort of been tracking your journey and I'm amazed that it took this many years for us to get in the same room together. I know. Likewise, we seem to have missed each other a couple of times, (laughs) um, but here we are and I'm glad we can make this happen and have a a deep focused conversation, which is always fun. Yeah. So um, there's so much we can obviously talk about, uh, but um, I wanted to start here, which is uh, 
I was listening to Ray Cronice and uh, Juliana Hever on your podcast recently. And Ray said something that caught my attention. I mean, he said a lot. That caught yeah, he my said attention. a lot in that podcast. <laughs> um, and there's one thing that stood out, and I wanted to kind of um, start off by talking about that. And uh, this is what he said, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But Ray said something like, um, companies that produce plant-based meats and plant-based burgers are the same as companies that produce potato chips. Mm-hmm. And they both are equally e- evil. Um and the reason I'm starting there, I mean, we can probably look, take that st- statement and spend the rest of the episode deconstructing it, and we're not going to do that. Um, but let me first provide some sort of background on Ray for the listener who may not know who Ray Cronice is. He is absolutely brilliant, former NASA scientist, uh, now focused on health and nutrition. Um, he's whole food plant-based, has co-written a book with Juliana Hever, who's another brilliant Mind, who is an amazing dietitian that um, has uh, written on One Green Planet in the past and worked with us. And Ray comes from a perspective of individual health. It's important to keep that in mind. And he's pretty, um, you know, he's he doesn't he, he's pretty open about the fact that he has a libertarian approach to individual health, and he thinks that people should do whatever the hell they want to. But if they want to be healthy, and if they want to have a long um, life, then the two things they can do is eat less and uh, eat whole food plant-based. And I don't think many people would disagree with that. Those are both good steps. Um, but before I get into why I even uh, brought up Ray, um, I want to pause here and let you react to that statement because I know there was a lot that happened in that episode. Uh, what What is your take on that and, and what do you feel about what he had to say about the space? Yeah, well, I would preface my response by first saying that I love and admire Ray. I think he's brilliant. Is what you know? I agree with you that I think he's brilliant, and I think he's a fresh, new, compelling, and very interesting voice in this movement. Um, and uh, and he has a lot of opinions, and yeah. and most of them are, if not all of them, are backed up by hard science. He's very much you know a hardcore. Uh, science person. And, you know, for those that are listening, he's probably most well known, anecdotally, at least for being the guy who helped Penn Jillette lose <laughs> over 100 pounds. And Penn talks about him in his book, Presto, referring to him as as uh, Cray Ray or Ray Cray or something mm. like that. Um, and I love Ray and, and I love Juliana. Um, I would disagree with that statement. However, I think um, it's important for people that there are voices like Ray who tow a hard line um, because that's that then identifies where that line is, you know, and he's he's trying to get people to understand and embrace the fact that uh, if you want to achieve optimal health, like there's this is not about like moderation and making people feel good about their choices. He's like, look, this is what the science says. So mm-hmm. I respect that. Um, at the same time, I would I would not say that the companies that are out there innovating specifically in the plant based space trying to create uh, meat and dairy alternatives to traditional foods are, quote-unquote, evil, I think it's quite the opposite. Um, And my perspective is much broader than Ray's. Like, I look at um, the ethics of food production. I look at the environmental impact of of food production in addition to the health implications. And when you canvas it more broadly from that perspective, um, it's, it's, it's elementary to me that these are good things. 
we need to figure out new ways of producing foods that are not derived from animal products. And to the extent that these companies are sort of um, breaking the glass ceiling in that, I think that that's something that should be celebrated. And I think it also um, is important to, you know, look at how humans sort of behave. You know, what is the psychological framework of of the individual. Not everybody is going to be able to step over that line like Ray or, you know, probably, you know, myself sort of, although it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, perfect um, and go whole food plant-based out of the gate. Like I think that these analog foods are important transition foods for a lot of people who are dipping their toe into this world and want to feel like it's okay and it's safe and they can still enjoy the foods that they're used to. And and to kind of respect that those individuals will go on their own journeys and, and evolve. But we need these stepping stone foods. So I think that they hold a very important place in the pantheon of food innovation. Yeah, I think obviously I agree with you there. Um, I heard I was listening to the episode when I was on a flight back to New York from L.A. And I took out my notebook and had... Uh, started writing notes because I was like, I'm going to ask Rich about this because uh, it's very interesting. And the reason, again, I, I agree with a ton of stuff that Ray does. And I, in fact, learned a lot from um, the work he's done around um, gold therapy and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, I have to say that I disagree on that specific point, much kind of like how you outlined, because plant-based meat alternatives, whether it's plant-based meats or burgers, are replacing are mostly replacing another product um, in people's diets that is a staple that is usually of um, a, a kind of a product of the factory farming industry. So it is very different from a potato chip, which is, if it's even replacing a food, it's probably a good food. Mm -hmm. um, potato chips are completely unnecessary and exist for no other reason but to give us pleasure. So that's one. And of course, you have all the environmental reasons why uh, we have to look beyond. When we say it's an individual choice, we have to think about the fact that all individuals are not created equal uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, race, culture, geography. All of that plays into the fact that some people just can't make the same choices as others. And uh, how do we create a food system where we can have um, some sort of a balance between the best diet for everyone versus what is the best diet for the planet as such? Um, so the reason I brought up Ray, back to why I brought it up, is because, not because I really wanted to discuss Ray <laughs> throughout this episode, uh, as fascinating as he is and as much as he has to say, but more importantly, because it speaks to a broader issue that's happening um, in our food space and our culture um, and beyond the food space in politics as well, is this, it tends to encourage tribal thinking. People think you're either on th in this faction or you're on the other. Are you, either you're whole food plant-based or you're a uh, junk food vegan. And, it, and I don't think things are that simple. Or, you know, you are vegan or you are keto or paleo. And increasingly we are finding that uh, a lot of people uh, are somewhere in between all of that. And most people who will change the way they eat will, will start off at least somewhere in the middle of all of that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the tribalism um, and I know you've talked about this a, a bit in the past, too. What are your thoughts on the tribalism that's happening in food culture? Well, the tribalism is real. It's mm -hmm. very real. Uh, and I think what's what's interesting about it is that the conversations that you're seeing swirling around food and diet and nutrition uh, seem to mirror uh, fairly directly the types of tribalism and conversations that we're seeing in the political sphere, right? It's it's super interesting, the parallels between these two things. 
And I think it's a reflection of the overall divided nature of our culture in this moment that we're experiencing. And it's disheartening, you know, it's disheartening. Uh, you know, I think, you know, it, with respect to the conversation of food, there's a lot of well-intentioned people and a lot of really smart people um, who are debating each other. And sometimes those conversations devolve into like a muckraking, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, situation that seems to benefit nobody because the 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 disagreements can't really be be heard and um, and and sort of um, uh, metabolized. They just cause us to dig our heels in further and defend our positions, which doesn't move us forward. So um, I'm dismayed by that. Uh, I'm glad the conversations are happening because I, I think that tension will ultimately, in the long run, lead to progress. But I think we can be our own worst enemies in these conversations. And you know, just in terms of like how I operate in the kind of social media sphere. I don't really get too involved in that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I try my best to share from my own experience. I bring on people onto my podcast that I trust and respect, and I don't always necessarily agree with everything that they say. And when I disagree, I try to engage them in that regard. But, you know, I don't get involved in a lot of these debates because I find them to be counterproductive. And so I think what we need to do is develop a greater appreciation for complexity and and nuance, you know. And I think in terms of how we do that, it begins with empathy and it begins with, you know, kind of trying our best to step out of our dogmatic view um, and, and, and reserve judgment. Like, how can we be as objective as possible to really look at this um, in a way that will allow us to to learn. Yeah, everyone seems to have a perfect diet. And um, I think most people don't ask the follow-up question is, what is the goal of that perfect diet? Because you can say a particular diet the is... Goal the goal is to be right. No, <laughs> goal that's the right. goal. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, it depends if you're, you know, if you're choosing a diet for performance athletically, that could be one thing. For health, that's another thing. For longevity, you could make slight changes to your diet. Or for sustainability in some cases because uh, you want to eat a diet that reflects your values. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the right diet for all those circumstances? May, there may be some overlap, and I, I actually think there is. There's a middle ground we can find, um, but it doesn't make for fun conversation uh, on TV for sure, and not even on podcasts. I mean, I listen to a lot of big podcasts that it's either the, you know, it's it's someone on Joe Rogan um kind of uh, talking about anyone who's plant-based as being kind of the uh, outliers and the ones that even succeed on a plant-based diet have to be uh, gifted like Rich Roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Like the, the better that I do in athletic events, like my intention with these things is to establish that this can be done, you know, mm -hmm. like if I can do this, anybody can do it. Or if I can go out and do all these crazy things, like you can meet me halfway. But what I found is like the further I push that envelope, the more likely I am to be considered like the one person who can, but most people, everyone most else people can't, can. <laughs> like I'm this outlier. And, you know, I've been on Joe's podcast twice. Um, I'm a huge fan of his show. Yeah. I find him to be a very gifted podcaster and he has incredibly interesting people on his program. And my personal relationship with him is very good. Like and when I've appeared on the show, he's treated me with respect and curiosity. So I only have good experiences, but then I, you know, I kind of hear him talk with other people and I'm like, that's not quite what mm -hmm. I would say, you know. Um, and I think that that, 
you know, where do we go from here, right? Yeah. And I think we need to understand that physiologically, we're all essentially the same, but within that kind of, you know, 90% of similarity, there are there are differences. And mm-hmm. what works for one person isn't going to work for another. I've been plant-based for 11 years, and I promised myself in the early stages of this journey, if I started to not feel good or yeah. something was going awry, that I would be intellectually honest about that and I would respond or, or adapt accordingly. That hasn't happened. But... You know, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be honest with you if I didn't come across people from time to time who said, look, I did it for a while. You know, I did it for this number of years and suddenly this happened mm-hmm. and, you know, I ate meat like I, I'm pregnant or or, you know, I know one woman. She was super raw, the healthiest person like I know. Yeah. And she started to have some health things going on, the specifics of which I I don't know. And she started eating fish and she started feeling better. Now, as somebody who's a proponent, you know, a very strident advocate of a plant-based diet, do I dismiss that or do I find, try to find some reason why she's doing it wrong? Like I can't judge her experience. Mm -hmm. So I have to take that into account into how I communicate around these ideas in a compassionate and as objective as possible way, understanding that I'm as prone as anyone to fall prey to the dogmatic constrictions of the lifestyle that I've chosen for myself. Yeah, I try to, you know, I I learned so much from Joe's show specifically um, because he tends to have guests on that typically I would not really know much about or dive deeper into. And that's a symptom of our larger, you know, media consumption problem right now where we kind of fall into these little uh, pockets where we surround ourselves with people we agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think I always try to have a bias filter on and I try to put it on myself as well because I have certain views on something. Am I now closed to other ideas? Um, and sometimes you, even even someone like Joe, who tends to be very open-minded, which is what makes his podcast so interesting is he tends to bring people from different points of view. Yeah, he does. He'll have super right-wing people yeah. and then left-wing people. Like, he's been pretty good about that, I think. Yeah. And, you know, in any any movement or any belief system, you're going to have people at the extremes of it. And I think um, what I like about a discussion discussions like that is that you end up finding that the ones in the middle, they may be on... Uh, different sides of a line, but they usually have a lot in common. And, you know, if you actually think about it, and I think, in fact, Juliana, back to what she said on on the podcast, too, she said something like, you know, who would disagree that most people should be eating fruits and vegetables? Mm-hmm. Um, and some people will have probably disagree with the fruits part, but, uh, you know, and it gets more complicated when you think of legumes and grains and other stuff. But yeah. let's just say, you know, what if we try to come up with some sort of a uh, a rule that everyone can agree on, at least from as a baseline, uh, as a baseline from health and sustainability. So I've been thinking through this idea, and tell me what you think about it. Is that you can call it plant centric, plant forward, plant powered? Uh, it doesn't matter. Where eighty percent of your food, your diet, is comprised of whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables. And if you have a problem with fruits, go with green leafy vegetables and cruciferous vegetables. You'll be doing great things for your health. And that remaining 10, 20 percent, the thing the, the thing we have to accept is a lot of people still want to eat cheese and uh, they want to have uh, pasta and pizza and bacon and sausage and uh, burgers and uh, people want to have sandwiches and people want to put mayo on their sandwiches with bread. Now, 
you if you're going to eat that, make sure it's at least 10 to 20% of your diet, not more. And you would undoubtedly be making a better choice if you choose the plant-based options in those categories. So, uh, you know, how what you do, how that mixes kind of depends on various factors, how you feel with the diet, you know, what your uh, favorite foods are. But that's, I think, a, a reasonable mix. By no means if I... Am I telling people that because we have companies making plant-based burgers that people should be eating that three times a day or more? I don't think anyone anyone's saying that. Uh, but how can we come up with some sort of a balanced rule? What do you what do you think about that? Well, it kind of goes back to Michael Pollan's most you know uh, most elementary you know edict, which is like you know what is it? Uh, eat f- eat real food, mostly plants, or mm-hmm. you know something along those lines. I mean, I think that's a good <laughs> a good thumbnail that that uh, can be a guiding light, a gu- you know a true north for people. Certainly, yeah increasing your intake of fruits and vegetables like okay there's some debate about fruit which i you know take <laughs> issue with but um most people i think would agree that that's a good starting point but then you get into grains and like there's a whole thing about grains whole grain whatever and then um nuts and seeds well i have a nut allergy you know it's, it just it quickly goes sideways and everybody has their opinion you know mm-hmm. and and it's frustrating when all of these medical minds and scientists can't agree. So if you're uh, a consumer and you want to be informed and you're um, diligent about trying to get to the bottom of this stuff, you ultimately end up confused. And that's not a good thing. I think that's a huge problem that we have to solve because if we can't have at least some semblance of consensus among the minds that have devoted their lives to sorting this out, then we have a huge problem. Now, you know, I've done as much work as you have probably in like looking at all what the work of all of these people. And I've ultimately concluded for myself through their work and my own experience that plant based is what works for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, personally, you know, it checks all the boxes. Not only, you know, has it been established to be a great way to prevent and even reverse so many of these chronic infirmities that were suffering from on a mass scale, but it's also more environmentally friendly. It's more, you know, ethically friendly. Um, And when you take all of that into consideration and the balance of things, it tips the scales towards the way that I've chosen to live. Now, what does that mean in terms of how you Mm -hmm. interface with somebody who sees the world very differently? And I think that there are, there's a, there's a spectrum of voices when it comes to that. Like I tend to tread pretty gently in mm. that area. You know, like again, it goes back for me to this place of non-judgment. But like I said, we need people like Ray or other people that are, you know, advocates in a more strident way to kind of be more absolutist mm. about it so that we know where those boundaries are. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it because you need people like that. And I think at the end of the day, you also need voices in the middle. Um, because the danger I find is if, if you all end up becoming too tribalistic about our views, we just don't listen to each other. And, and of course not. Kind, you pointed out earlier it's happening in politics and it's obviously happening also in the food world. Um, and a lot of this became kind of personal for me in the last few years. I've been plant-based eight years now, but um, for the first six years of, and I probably haven't talked about this publicly, actually, but uh, for the first six years of being plant-based, I wasn't the healthiest person. Um, and 
there were numerous factors involved. I can't say I was a junk food vegan, but I definitely ate out a lot. Um, and I was overworked, over like stressed, um, um, wasn't sleeping well, and um, was not as active as I should have been. And the end result of that was I had, uh, I found myself two years ago, high cholesterol and overweight mm. and thinking, wait, how is this happening? I'm, yeah. You know, I've been working, I've kind of uprooted myself from my career and dedicated uh, my life to um, to spreading the word about why we need to change the way we eat to, you know, my initial driver was uh, environmental, but then I saw the other benefits and I understood them intellectually, but maybe I wasn't practicing all of them. So two years ago, I, I said, all right, enough is enough. I got to make a change. So, um, and this is why the, this tribalism became interesting for me because I said, well, what should I do and who should I listen to to try to figure out how to get out of this funk? Um, so I tried eating largely whole food plant-based and I started cooking at home, um, cooking simple meals. And I went through a complete transformation in a few months. I, um, it took me about a year, I think, but um, my cholesterol dropped 40 uh, points. Mm -hmm. I'm totally normal now. Mm -hmm. uh, lost 30 pounds in the process. And uh, I could easily say, well, it's the whole food plant-based that did it for me. But I can't be 100% sure because I did one additional thing, which most people in the space wouldn't do. And I actually have been told people I've done this, so this will be the first time, is I started listening to paleo podcasts. I started listening to... Uh, people who are talking about the keto diet. I started reading books about biohacking and listening to folks in that space. And while I, it was frustrating to hear some of the things they had to say, I did learn a lot, which had sometimes nothing to do with diet. I learned about intermittent fasting. I learned about um, high-intensity interval training. I learned about supplements and adaptogens uh, using cold therapy. Mm -hmm. And I um, also started a regular meditation practice. So my whole point is if I had been closed to the idea, thinking I'm in my plant-based bubble, I would have not opened this whole world of ideas and knowledge that could help anyone. And maybe perhaps it was just the largely whole food plant-based that did the trick for me, but I don't think so. I started sleeping better. I, I started taking, you know, being more focused in terms of um, spending time for myself and taking care of myself. And I think that's the part that's missing here because when people hear, here's the simple solution and like you said, my solution, it's perfect and it's right. And the other side is saying, here's my solution, it's perfect and it's right. At the end of the day, the people who really need help are lost mm -hmm. because you don't know who to turn to. Yeah, and then they, they just become paralyzed and then they just maintain whatever unhealthy habits they're, they're already practicing, right? So there's no forward movement. And I think, you know, I applaud you for that. I mean, I think it takes a certain amount of humility to step out of your, you know, out of your bubble and entertain the idea that somebody who you might on a surface level disagree with um, might have something valuable to say. And I, I think that's a, a lesson that we can all learn from. And I commend you for that. Um, and I think, you know, in term, it's interesting that you had that experience the first six years. And I think that speaks to why Ray is so mm -hmm. saying, you know, look, stay away from this stuff. It's not healthy because um, it's never been easier 
than it is now to be like a junk food vegan. I mean, you live in New York City. It's like there's amazing vegan restaurants all over the place in this city. Um, but a lot of them you can get super tasty comfort mm-hmm. food, you know, like fried chick- chickpea fry, whatever. Like you can go get all kinds of burgers and fry, like anything yeah. you want, you know, v- veganized. And we trick ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing for ourselves. We're being healthy when in reality we're just eating a bunch of processed junk. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an additional confusing thing for the consumer who's like, I went plant-based and I gained weight. Well, did you go plant-based or did you go vegan or what exactly did you do? It's just much more complicated than that. Um, And that's why, you know, it's important to distinguish between just being vegan, which means no animal products, versus Whole food plant based. That's a much, you know, it's a much different thing. But and even within that, mm-hmm. you know, it goes back to all of these factions and these camps that love to argue with each other, you know, within the plant based community. I mean, you have certain contingents who don't even want to talk about organic versus non organic. Mm-hmm. They dismiss it. Or gluten, you know, what what is the impact of, of gluten for those that are sensitive or intolerant to it? Well, that's not really important. Well, are you sure about that? You know, like so so to be able to kind of entertain those different perspectives, I think, is is crucial and important and speaks to trying to transcend the parameters of tribalism that are keeping us stuck and and in this sort of cycle that isn't behooving us. Yeah, which is why I like the work that you've done in the last several years is, uh, of course, diet seems to be the foundations. Uh, food seems to be the foundations. And, of course, you're an athlete. But then you... What I like is you you keep pointing out that it, you can't just do that. You have to. If you want to really be healthy and you really want to have a well-rounded life experience, it's you have to go beyond food. Um, of course, you have to manage the food part, but you've got to start thinking about um, things beyond that. So mm-hmm. um, do you think that's a point that tends to sometimes get lost in these um you know, in this, in the quest for everyone to find their perfect diet, is you forget there's all these other factors that probably equally, if not more important. Yeah, there, there's no question about it. Um, I have a saying, a thing I like to say, which is that you know, health begins with what's on your plate, but like wellness is alchemy. Mm. And what I've seen in my experiences, kind of traversing this world of wellness and health and speaking it. Veg fest is I I tend to see a lot of people who who um, change their diet, they experience fantastic results, and then they get stuck. Mm. And then it's just about like talking about kale, you know, or <laughs> or and their growth becomes stunted. You yeah. know, for me, it's like I cleaned up my diet, I had this resurgence in vitality. And then it became about, like, how to channel that vitality and how to continually grow. Um, And, you know, I think the frequency of the foods that you put in your body are super important. That's like the first portal. But once you do that, that's just first base, right? Now what are you doing? How are you continuing to evolve? And a lot of people just, they just, they stop evolving and they Mm -hmm. stay in that world. And, you know, so to be truly well, yes, you have to eat right, but... You can eat the cleanest, most pristine diet in the world, but if your relationships are a disaster and mm-hmm. you're an asshole, you know, like who cares? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You're yeah. not truly well. Yeah. So what does your interior life look like? What does your emotional life look mm-hmm. like? What is your spiritual connection? Like all of these things contribute to what it means to be a fully integrated, actualized human being. Yeah. And and just to kind of to wrap up the the tribalism discussion, I do 
understand why we are in the place we are right now with um this dogmatic view of things and i think it come it kind of comes back to the point you just you mentioned which is most people are individually at a at a personal level are kind of trying to make up for things that are missing so they seek community and they seek tribe and of course we're humans we need community but in this sort of overstimulated information age where you know everything seems to be moving faster than ever and everyone has fear of being left behind people just want to find some connection and if they can't have a voice as an individual they want to join a tribe and have that collective voice so it you know it all kind of ties in together you work the inner work that you can do to to be to find your own sense of happiness and your own sense of purpose if you find that you don't necessarily need to jump on the bandwagon of some tribe and then believe in that ideology and belief system blindly it'll make you more open to questioning mm-hmm. and i think that's why i was able to question um it didn't and i didn't have to stray from my belief system i stayed within my belief system but i was able to pull in what i thought was useful um and i think you know increasingly more people need to be open to ideas like that yeah i would i agree with you completely on that yeah, so let's kind of uh, shift gears now and get beyond the the tribe. Let's talk about what's happening in the world of ritual. Um, you know, your journey has been fun and remarkable to watch from uh, from the outside. Uh, I know we've been touched since the early days, but never ended up meeting till today. Um, and I find it interesting that we end up meeting um, when your revised version of Finding Ultra is coming mm-hmm. out. Uh, because that's when I first heard of you um, and you contacted and you sent me an early copy of the the first version that came out. Let's go back to that back in 2012 when that came out. What were your intentions, expectations, goals, if any, when you put out that book? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, back in 2012, uh, when the book came out, you know, there was there was a small subculture of people who kind of were familiar with what I was doing because some of the ultra endurance events that I had done got a little bit of press. But you know, I was a, I was you know I was a first time author, um, so there wasn't a lot of hype around like this book coming out. And I remember when I was writing the book, thinking to myself, like, who's going to want to read this book? Like, it's a, it's I mean, it's a memoir, but in many ways, it's it's a it's a couple different kinds of books. Like on one hand, it's a sports biography, right? It's about how I did these challenges. It's also an addiction recovery story. And then it's kind of a health primer on mm-hmm. top of that. And like trying to find the balance of those three narratives to make it work was tricky. But on the sports bio aspect of it, I was thinking, I've never even won a race. You know, it's like, and I knew Scott Jurek was writing his book at the mm. same time. I was like, here's the guy who's like the king of ultramarathons, like the most celebrated ultramarathoner in the world. He's vegan. He's writing his book at the same time. I'm who's going to, why would anybody want to read my book? You know? And I realized that, um, the, the, the value of the book would be directly related to the extent to which I was willing to be super honest and emotionally vulnerable in telling the story, that that was what I could contribute to this discussion. And so I was very intent upon, trying to accomplish that, which is a scary thing to be kind of exposed as a raw nerve. Um, and I remember when I, I uh, sent the, the manuscript to the edit, to my editor for the first time, the completed manuscript, and I looked at my wife and I was like, this might be the worst decision that I've ever made. Like, it's terrifying, right? 
Um, but the book came out, and when it when it came out, it wasn't like oh, it's New York Times bestseller. Like it, it was a slow drip, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get the word out. Um, but I knew that it represented a pivotal moment in my life, and that if I really devoted myself to trying to get not just the book out, but the messages that I was trying to convey in the book, that it could not only be of tr- benefit to other people, but also could could help me transform my own life in the sense that, you know, I was stuck in, I was still practicing law. Like I was practicing law while I was writing the book, you know, um, and I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> and I thought this book is my opportunity to finally transcend that career and find a new career. Um, and so I let my bar membership dues lapse and just stepped into the unknown. And one of the themes of the book is, is this idea that when you're when your heart is true, like when you're in that right place and you're living in faith that the universe will conspire to support you. <laughs> and my experience in the wake of the so the book comes out, it does what it does and it's fine. And then the dust settles and then it's like I'm at home and I have no income and the phone is not ringing. You know, <laughs> and I'm like where is that universal uh, conspiracy of support now? You know, and, and I had a moment of thinking maybe everything I said in the book was bullshit, you know, mm. like, cause it was, we went through a very difficult time for a couple of years and many occasions in which I looked at Julie, my wife, and I was like, I got to go back and get a law firm job. And she, and she was the one who said, no, you've come so far. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the only way out is through, we have to like, um, we have to see this through and, you know, we're, we're going to live in the moment and, you know, we're together and we'll weather this storm. And it took a tremendous amount of faith. We were completely financially dismantled. Uh, we had cars repossessed. It was gnarly. And this was after the book came oh, out? Yeah, oh, yeah. After the book came wow. out. We almost lost our house. We came within 48 hours of our house being uh, foreclosed upon. I think the nadir, the lowest moment was when we were so broke that uh, waste management came and took our trash can bins away because we couldn't pay like the $65 or whatever it was to keep the bins there for our trash service. And I just thought it was very emasculating. Like it was a very scary time. Um, and it's funny because now, you know, I, my life is an embarrassment of riches and, 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 uh, you know, I get to do all of these amazing things and I have incredible opportunities and, you know, people will say to me like, oh, you're an inspiration or how you built this thing. And kind of if you look backwards, you know, with 2020 vision in the rear view, it all looks like it lined up perfectly. And there's a neatly packaged narrative if you Google me and it looks like it all just happened effortlessly. But it was a, it was a very challenging time. And that's that's some of the things I talk about in this revised edition, because I think what I had to weather in the wake of the book coming out is as dramatic, perhaps more relatable um, than you know the athletic and endurance events that that transpire in the book, the original version. That's that's uh, wow. I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, it was crazy. That you were you were able to lay it out all out in that book, and then face probably the even tougher challenges going forward. Yeah, and challenges like not everyone can relate to like mm-hmm. oh, what's it feel like on day four of Epic Five? Like I can yeah. weave a yarn around that, but but I think you know to talk about how you get through the hard financial times and mm-hmm. how do you maintain your marriage and what is it like for kids and all of that kind of stuff are, are things that are universal that, that we can all kind of connect with. So what kept you going during that time frame? I mean, where, where did you manage to find those reserves of uh, a belief when, um, 
you know, it sounds like the easiest thing to do could have been to just go try to get a get a job again because it's you obviously were qualified mm-hmm. and had and experienced enough to get one. Yeah, I, I think it was a couple things. I mean, first of all, like it was Julie's support. Like without her, without her steadfast conviction about what we were doing, I would have retreated, mm-hmm. you know, and gone and got some job somewhere. Um, so there was that. Second to that is, um, is that I had weathered very challenging times in the past. Like, you know, I was a broken soul and ended up in rehab for 100 days, you know, sort of a destitute alcoholic. And I had lost everything at that point and had to rebuild from there. So knowing that I, that you know, sort of reflecting back on that period and how dark it was and how it got better by sort of availing myself of certain tools and living in faith, um, I think was beneficial because uh, it gave me the strength to kind of weather this second version of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was really a test of faith. Like, is this really what you're supposed to do? Like it was, Julie calls it our divine moment. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's that thing that I think we all have, all of us at some point in our life are faced with challenges that are either going to break us or make us stronger. And in the in the face of that, do you retreat? Mm. Do you uh, you know anchor yourself in the present moment and try to learn the lesson that is being presented to you? Um, and you know, with with Julie's sort of backbone, I was able to kind of understand that that was what was going on. Um, and rather than like resent it or try to change it, to just move forward with total neutrality, mm-hmm. like to be non-reactive, you know, mm-hmm. which was like, you had, it was like a warrior's path. Like you had, like, how can you be like a sensei? Like, how can you <laughs> just be like Yoda in this experience? And I think that it taught me a lot. Like it taught me that it, it, it really showed me my attachment to the material world in a way that I hadn't confronted before mm. and made me really wrestle with my ego. Like, well, if I lose this house, what does that mean? Or if I can't, you know, pay this bill right now, what does that mean to me as a father, as a husband, as a professional? Um, and, and I think it ultimately gave me um, a gift, which is that now being on the other side of that, I can share from a perspective of strength because mm-hmm. I've gone through that. And I think that whether I'm saying it ex- exp- you know, explicitly or not, um, there's a resonance because I have like emerged from that flame. And so when I speak into the microphone on my own show or, you know, write posts or whatever I do, um, it gives me, a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of respect and a credibility that, that comes mm-hmm. with that. And did you and Julie think the reason you need to continue down this path and have that sense of belief is because you felt more people needed to hear your message and you, you had, an answer or answers to what ailed others or no, your story definitely could shape. not. It, no, what, what def- was the... it, no, I mean that it, it wasn't from, it wasn't from a place of ego, but it, but it was in response to look, you know, leading up to the book. And when the book came out, I was on the receiving end of a tremendous amount of email coming in from people all over the world who were connecting with my story in a way that I would have never predicted or imagined. Um, and not just like, hey, great book, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I loved it, but more like, hey, I really, you know, 
I felt like I was reading my own story and your story, and here's what happened to me, or here's what I'm mm-hmm. going through, um, like really intimate personal stuff, like stuff you don't just tell your friend, you know. But in certain respects, and on some occasions, you know, stories that they're like, I've never even told my spouse this, or I've never even whatever. You're the first, you're the only person I ever. Told. There's something very like it was it was very moving for me, um, and so I felt like a calling to step into this place of trying to be um, not a teacher or somebody who has the answers, but somebody who could who could be like a, a receptacle for that, mm-hmm. you know, like a safe, um, a safe place where people could connect around these ideas that had been transformative in my own life, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, that doesn't. So I mean... felt like I had something to say. Yeah. And there was something about like the service component of it um, that made it very potent for me. Yeah. You know, I, the reason I even ask this is because in in this day and age, everyone's trying to um, grapple with how one can be, especially in the business space and in the crowded food world as well, is how do you become an authentic brand? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you develop an authentic voice? And I, I'm, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that it's not so much about developing an authentic voice or brand, but your story is a story of you just trying to be your authentic self. And that seemed to be kind of the mission in the beginning. And Mm -hmm. the fact that other people connected with that, uh, saw a piece of themselves in that, and could then take away something positive from it, only egged you on to just be more yourself. So I think, I mean, would it be safe for me to categorize your some of your early years since the launch of the of Finding Ultra as being you on a journey to just be more you or both of you being on a journey of just living a life that was more reflective of a life you imagined without necessarily having just to frame it better it's not like you sat down in 2012 and said my book is coming out uh, in two years, I want to be a wellness guru. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, it's not. It's like, yeah, get out the whiteboard, and here's the course I'm going to plot. It wasn't Five like that plan. at all. Yours, mine. I mean, literally, like, you know, I started the my podcast in November of 2012. The book came out in May of 2012. I started the podcast. And what was the intention just, for that? Like, what what were you like, thinking? Desperation. Like, I, wow. we were living on a on an organic farm in Kauai in yurts. Moved my whole family to Kauai because there was a businessman there who offered my wife and I an opportunity um, to, he wanted, he was interested in trying to convert this amazing um, farm that he had into kind of a community that he didn't really know exactly what he wanted to do, but there was something about my book that spoke to him. He's like, come out here. I want to like workshop this idea with you, bring mm-hmm. your whole family. And it was like a lifeline because nobody had, I, I had no, we had no money, you know? And it's like, this thing came at the last minute and he's like, come on out. And we went out like, okay, like, this is what showed up. We're going to go do this. This is not what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, and we weren't sure we were going to go back to L.A. Like, I was convinced we were going to lose our house at this point. I was like, maybe we're going to live in yurts. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and and what happened was after being on that island for a little while, I started to get a little bit of, you know, island fever, stir crazy. I'd worked so hard to kind of plug myself in and be connected through the book. And now I felt like I was stepping back away from that. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I didn't like that feeling. So the podcast was just a way of trying to, you know, throw a stone over the ocean and reconnect with people again. 
nothing more than that. I wasn't like, I'm going to start a podcast. I was like, literally, I love podcasts because I listened to so many mm-hmm. of them when I was training. And at that time in 2012, there weren't a lot of podcasts. You know, I wouldn't say I was an early adopter because they'd been around since like 2006, but um, it wasn't cool to have a podcast <laughs> then. And I did the first episode, just my wife and I turned on a mic and started talking. And I didn't know if there would be a second one. But I knew that in the wake of doing that, I was like, this was fun. This was really cool. It was like a, it, it was creatively fulfilling. Yeah. And 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 that was it. I was like, let's do it again tomorrow. There was no plan. <laughs> and, you know, since that day, I've never missed a week of uploads. And I did it for, I don't know, two and a half years or something like that before it became something that could like, um, you know, provide income for mm-hmm. my family. Um, but to get back, what was your original question? Because I was circling back to that and then I lost my train of thought. But it had something to do with, um, oh, authenticity. Yeah. So authenticity, yes. Uh, unfortunately, the word authenticity has been co-opted and <laughs> diluted so much. It's been commodified. Um, so it's weird to even talk. Like, it's a strange question. The minute you start talking <laughs> about it, you've already, you know, you've already uh, turned it into something that it's not, right? <laughs> um, but I would say that, yes, like that is the, mo- the most important thing to me in everything that I do, whether it's writing, speaking— doing a podcast, whatever it is, it's like, how can I be as honest and as real as possible? Mm-hmm. Not in an artificial way, but um, but in a very real way. And it's something I think about a lot. Um, and I think that has to come before everything else. It's not something that can be manufactured. And it's not easy, you know, and it's not always comfortable to, to be that honest. And not everyone is wired mm. for that. It's risky to, yeah. do, to really be authentic and real. Um, and, and I, to be honest with you, you know, I, I, I've been having this weird experience because when I guest on a show like your show and somebody says, you know, tell me the story and I, ha- and I go through the story, like I've done a million times before. Sometimes I'm like, is that honest? Like, did that, did it really happen that way? You know, every time you tell a story, it probably becomes a little bit less true. But you, you even know, questioning so. that you're proving yourself to be more authentic. But yeah, but it's like, <laughs> like I want to be honest, and then I'm like, yeah. I'm always trying to evaluate. But yeah. you know, I'm I'm always thinking about that, and I think where I learned that, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a strategy. It's I learned that in early sobriety. Mm-hmm. And it's because you can't. There's a saying in recovery, like you can you. you um, if you want to save your ass, you can't save your face. You got to pick one, right? And so people that are fronting and trying to look good are the ones that end up relapsing uh-huh. because you got to be ready and willing to be as honest and as raw and as real yeah. as possible, which takes courage. Um, but that's how you get well. That's how you grow, right? And that never stops. Just because I'm sober, just because I've done these things that I've done, I'm, you know, there's a lot of areas in my life where I'm a disaster and I have, you know, all kinds of character defects that need, you know, a lot of work. So I don't stand on any kind of podium. And when I speak into a microphone, I do my best to anchor it in my direct experience rather than from a place of like giving advice to people. Right, right. And, you know, obviously you've, you look at what's happening right now in the world of online media and social media. Uh, You've probably witnessed all of that emerge and, and you're part of it now already. But but, you know, this whole thing about influencers and you have um, uh, the reason I think of that phenomenon. And I've said this before to be 
to be a thing even now is because people just crave a connection with something real and mm-hmm. you know in this you know back to kind of the earlier theme when we were talking about tribes and food tribes is that people are just bombarded with information you know it's it's almost strange that we are we're more informed but more confused today uh, we're more connected yet more isolated mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the reason why people crave a connection with someone. And, and in some cases, brands are able to, brands or food companies or names. At the end of the day, those brands embody the values, the authenticity of the founders. And it's all now become a fight to prove how you, you can be. Um, in this world where people don't have attention for more than five seconds. Right. Well, I have a couple observations on that. The first is that I think, well, the good news or the silver lining in that is that because we're on the receiving end of such a tremendous amount of content, it's just a constant you know, waterfall of like information showering us at all times, that we have become finely attuned to what's real and what's not. Like our bullshit meters mm-hmm. are, are are highly calibrated and like i don't know about you but i can spot it a million miles yep. away and I, I i'm like that's bullshit that's not real you know i can tell and i think most people are if not there they're on their way to being there certainly young people they mm-hmm. have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of advertising or marketing that gets interwoven into anything mm-hmm. right the minute something smacks of a sale like they're they're tuned out yeah um and so i think what the the lesson from that is that that and that's why everyone's like, well, you got to be authentic. So then they're creating marketing campaigns around <laughs> authenticity, which is in its own artifice, right? And I think that's why that's a that's one reason why I think long form podcasting has exploded because there is a real thirst and a hunger for something that is real. And you know, when two people are just sitting across from each other having a conversation without any big agenda, um, we're hardwired as human beings, as tribal human beings, to want to connect with that. And and I think that that's a, a cool thing and mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. And I had one more observation that I just spaced out on. All right, no yeah. problem. Maybe you'll get, come back yeah. to it. But, you know, I was... Um I keep getting asked this question. I mean, how how do we build authenticity into our brand? And mm-hmm. um, the I've learned. Oh, I know what it was. Sorry. Yeah, go for it. Um, and this this relates to entrepreneurship. I think that you know, uh, a startup or a company or entrepreneurs when they're thinking about how to position their brand so that they can connect with a certain demographic of people, and they're thinking, how can we be real? How can we be authentic? The bigger, the bigger issue, the bigger question, or, or, or perhaps this, the, the real strategy is understanding that no matter what your product, your widget that you're trying to sell, whether it's a service or a hard good or whatever it is, first and foremost, every company has to be a media company mm-hmm. now. You know, it's almost like the media has to come before the product itself, and great media is about storytelling. So you have to become a very good storyteller. So if you're the founder of a company, what is your personal story? What is the story of your company? And how can you tell that story in a way that will connect with the people that you're trying to connect with? And the more you understand that, not only understand it, but prioritize that as almost coming before the product itself, 
I think that is that is the the path to success in this current environment in which we find ourselves of of you know media inundation. That is literally what I was going to go to next, okay, which is sorry. when companies ask me that question, I'm the only thing I've learned is exactly what you've just said is that the companies that do it well are the ones that are just able to tell their story and are able to tell a real story consistently and are not thinking about any uh not listening to anyone they're just mm-hmm. being honest they're and not market testing it no and... no they aren't following some some sort of a uh, consultant's advice uh, on some on some uh, powerpoint deck that was laid out for them the ones that stand out and i've learned this even the last i've done over 40 episodes now mostly talking to entrepreneurs or investors trying to really get to the heart of what what makes the ones that are able to create good things consistently and execute on great ideas. You know, everyone can have a great idea. What does it take to actually turn that into action? You're an entrepreneur in your own right. Uh, Your product is different from, say, a a plant-based burger. But at the end of the day, it takes a certain amount of uh, planning and it takes execution above everything else. And without, in this day and age, you're right, without that story layered on top of that, without the ability to communicate why, why you even do what you do, firstly, and then what it is that you do and how you go about doing it without being able to consistently communicate that and not lose it as you continue to grow, assuming you do grow, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is is the absolute trick. And some of the best lessons I've learned is from entrepreneurs who you sit down 10 minutes with them and you know that this is, how, this is what that person really thinks. This isn't some two-pager talking point that they're right. <laughs> memorized and spitting out. Um, and you can, and they actually want you to ask them interesting questions. They don't want to be asked businessy questions. Yeah, well, I think I think what you're speaking to really is uh, is comfort with transparency, mm-hmm. and 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 that is you know another thing that that you know the millennial generation and the and the generation that's that's coming up on their heels absolutely requires and demands. Like they, you know, look if you're a young person and you're like thinking about which company you're gonna you're gonna patronize. Are you going to go with the company that you don't know anything about or the ones that where you actually feel like you know who these people are and what their mission is and mm. and you know and they're giving back in a certain way and you kind of understand they've told you everything about how they make what they make so you're connected to that in a, in a real way um, that that is the key and and I think entrepreneurs who are who have discomfort with transparency smacks of somebody who has something to hide and mm. that breeds distrust. Yeah, and you can maybe you can fool some people, but um, over time you're going to run into the same problems, especially because everyone, whether you're starting a business or whether you're launching a podcast or a service or whatever it is, if you don't, you're not able to make that. I guess I hate using the word authentic all the time mm-hmm. because, as you said, it kind of ruins the word. Yeah. <laughs> the more you use it, that real connection with someone who feels that they are listening to words that are forming in your mind right now, versus something that's scripted and repeated a billion times, just to achieve some sort of end goal, which is a sale. Uh, most likely. So, you know, I think if anything is good about the fact that we live in this um, information abundant age and lack of attention is that it only makes the real messages and the real voices and the real stories stand out. Um, and the the sooner you, you 
you get on board with just being transparent, the more likely you will establish those connections. Because uh, as you said, kids will just drown you out. They can spot bullshit from a mile away. Well, above and beyond that, I think a- another mistake that I see people making is they believe that their product, you know, if they believe their product is the best, then they're confused as to why everyone else isn't seeing it that way. And they don't understand that no one's waiting around for your new thing, whether it's a burger or a book or a <laughs> podcast or a record album or a shoe or whatever it is, um, you have to make people care. So how are you going to make people care and why should it matter to them? And that's where the storytelling comes in. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think that what we're seeing is not only the influx or the ascension of, of really socially conscious brands and you know, conscious capitalism and, and social entrepreneurship, which are all things that are amazing. Um, but this, it's almost, it's almost de rigueur that you have to have, uh, you know, a service component to your business these days. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- how are you giving back and, and what are you doing as a business owner that is for the betterment of the planet? And there's a spectrum with this. You have companies where that is woven into the mission statement of who they are. It's very integral. And then you have others who just know that that's they have to do that. So there's like a lip service thing. We give one percent to such and such, but it's not really the culture, you know. And I think there's a huge difference between those two things. Yeah. And how have you been able to, you know? I know we started off this part of the conversation really about your early journey with with finding Ultra, the book coming out in 2012, and the early days of your podcast to where it is now. Undoubtedly, when I'm sure you're constantly contacted about partnership opportunities and sponsorships and advertising. How do you maintain that balance of um, staying true to who you are, um, but at the same time, you know, taking the opportunities that help you and not saying yes to everything and going for wherever the money is? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, uh, we live in a capitalist society Mm -hmm. and and, and I work very hard on on what I create, but it has to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. So it's got to pay the bills. Uh, my podcast has an advertising model, so I do two or three reads per episode, um, and uh, I've I've kind of you know been on a roller coaster ride with how to manage that. You know, at first I was like I felt really weird and guilty, like that I was doing ads at all, and then I made peace with it and I embrace it now because mm-hmm. this is this is the only way that I can continue to do it. I mean, it's like it's I mean my podcast isn't a full time job, but it's pretty close. Like mm-hmm. and as you know. It's more work than I think people realize. Um, So with that, you know, I have to be very careful about the brands that I choose to, you know, promote on the podcast. And and it's getting it's getting better. Like at first there weren't there weren't that many. There's only like a handful of companies that even do podcast advertising. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have very much choice. That's starting to change. And I feel like the sponsors that I now have are becoming more and more in alignment with the message. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really good about that. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I mean, I have I'm, I'm in a very blessed position where uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in doing this or that with me or want me to. And, and it's all cool and awesome. Mm-hmm. And I want to say yes to all of it. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes more challenging to remain focused on what it is that I really what's the important work that I'm trying to do. Um, so for example, like, oh, I can get on a plane and fly to this cool place and give a talk and get paid, but mm-hmm. is that really the best use of my time? And I have to, you know, gauge that against the other, the other goals that I have. 
Right. Yeah. So what is your new, you're now in your 50s. Um, what is the new phase for you in terms of looking ahead? How you do you, how do you, what are your upcoming projects? What, what is your focus when you look ahead? Are you, do you have a plan? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's so funny because I do mm-hmm. really well with goals and structure, mm-hmm. but I've never been one to like forecast the five-year plan. Like here's mm-hmm. where I want to be in five years. Like I, I, I'm much more of like I surf the wave. Mm. And I just try to, like, the more I'm focused on just trying, like this week, I'm I'm going to put out the best podcast I possibly can. And I'm going to do this and that. Mm. And I'm just going to try to make it, like, that's what's under my control. And you also I, seem to get I, that from recovery. That not that what they tell? Yeah, well, it's it, like a detaching from the results and mm. just being focused on the things I can control, which is the caliber of what I'm, what I'm putting out into the world. Um, and I sort of trust that the right opportunities will will come around, and that I'll have that my intuition will be calibrated such that I'll know what the right thing to do is. And there's certain things I want to do, like that are kind of um, in the ephemera right now. Uh, but in the short run, I just you know it's like I, I love what I do. You know, I don't. It doesn't need to be any different than it is. And I'm I'm competitive and I'm ambitious and all all the like, but. You know, if if this all all it was, if this is it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm good. You know, I just want to continue to like do my podcast, try to find the coolest people I can, and have these enriching conversations with them, and that's awesome. And then beyond that, yeah, I, I rewrote Finding Ultra, and that's coming out this week. My wife and I have a new uh, cookbook coming out at the end of April, the Plant Power Way Italia. So we're excited about that, and we'll do a promotional push around that, of course. Um, and, you know, beyond that, we do retreats in cool foreign locations, and we're continuing to build that aspect of what we're doing. Um, my wife also wrote a cookbook called This Cheese is Nuts. It's a primer on how to create unbelievably delicious plant-based cheeses. And and there's a lot of interest in, in, uh, in commercializing a product mm-hmm. line around that. So she's very active in the development phase of that at the moment. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, that's exa- yeah. that's a whole that's a whole full time uh, yeah. So all of you there. venture capitalists and entrepreneurs who are in the plant based space that are listening to this, I could tell you her cheese is the best, um, and that's a hundred percent guarantee. But no, she's so she. There's a lot of people who she's in talks with right now, and and that's so I think that's pretty exciting. That is very yeah. exciting. So it's I you know I get a picture that you get you both tend to kind of get to control your work environment, how much you work and what you spend your energy on. Um, and while it may have been easy as you got more uh, attention and popularity, um, as well as financial success in the last few years, to suddenly go off and fall back into the trap that you probably were in before you quit that lawyer job and mm-hmm. uh, decided to write the book, Um but it sounds like you're very conscious of the fact that you don't want to now fall into another trap and be more intentional about the work that you do uh, and make sure that it's the stuff that, that really fulfills you and allows you to give. Is, is that an accurate kind of description? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that, you know, I work as hard, if not harder, than I did when I was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a, as you know, it, there's a blur between your personal life and your professional life. So yeah. I feel like I'm kind of always working, but never really working. Like, are we, like right now, are we working? Like, I guess we are. Guess. It doesn't really feel like work, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, and so because I, I love it so much, um, there are times where I push myself too hard and I have to, like, take a break, you mm-hmm. know, like 
like go to a matinee on a Monday morning or do something, you know, do something that like you can't really do if you have a nine to five job. So yeah. um, I have a joke, which is like all this wellness is making me unwell. Like, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen that in the wellness space with wellness entrepreneurs. It's yeah. like they're interested in wellness. It's their passion. But then they become workaholics in that yeah. regard. And then they become unwell. Mm. And, you know, I've dipped my toe in what that's like. And so I have to be careful about that as well. Yeah. Speaking of uh, of uh, health and wellness and the space, uh, what are your thoughts on the overall state of health and wellness? I mean, as we started off talking today, there's there's no lack of information out there about the facts around health and food. Um, and everyone has a perfect diet and everyone thinks they're right. Uh, more and more people obviously seem to be choosing healthier, cleaner foods and shifting away from meat and dairy and choosing plant-based foods. We're well aware of that. And we've, we talk a lot about that on this podcast, specifically about this whole new industry that's emerging that's offering better for you products that solves both our health problems and, of course, the big looming sustainability challenge we face mm-hmm. as we become 10 billion people at, by the year 2050. But at the same time, we haven't seemed to have solved anything. Yeah. <laughs> people are still suffering. Well... It's a very interesting time because there is this juxtaposition of the 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 explosion of wellness and interest in wellness um, that is in equal measures in terms of growth with the state of chronic illness in America and 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 across the world, frankly. Like, mm-hmm. all right, so you go on Instagram and everyone's posting their acai bowl and it all looks amazing and their green juice and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile. We're still in a place where, you know, one out of three people will die of a heart attack in America. You know, obesity rates are through the roof. I think it's something like 70% of people are overweight or obese. Uh, by 2030, 50% of America, 30% of Americans will be diabetic or pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the chronic lifestyle illness is the epidemic of our time. And we can get stuck in our own silo and think everybody's keyed into wellness, but that's not the case. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the real work, you know, what's exciting in wellness is, is I mean, what's happening in wellness right now is super exciting. And like I said, I'm optimistic. It's growing like crazy. The awareness is expanding. The Internet has fueled that. Fantastic. At the same time, the biggest problem that we need to solve is penetrating the communities that... Um, are not hearing this message. You know, right now, wellness is considered, perceived as an elitist ideal. Mm-hmm. It is the purview of the, of, the, of the elite. And that's a problem. You know, what we need to be doing is focusing on how we can get this information, these food products, this education to the people who need it most, the people in the underprivileged communities, the people in the food deserts, um, the people who, you know, lack the awareness or the education. They're not, you know, looking at acai bowls on, <laughs> on Instagram um, because because that is where we can make the biggest impact. Mm. Um, so how we do that, I think, is a maybe another podcast. Um, but uh, I think that the more that we can attune the focus of the community on solutions in that regard, the better off we're going to be. And, and it's happening. I mean... You know, all the urban gardening that we're seeing and, and the revitalization of, you know, sort of downtrodden downtown areas is happening. Like there's cool things happening, but I think we have a very long way to go. Yeah, which is why, you know, going back to the, the literally the first thing we discussed today, um, why there is no 
you can't be too dogmatic about what is the perfect diet without you know taking a bit of a step back, going ten thousand feet high, and looking down at what's happening. And the only way we can spread wellness and uh, good food beyond this elitist um, minority that seems to be focused and obsessed about it today is by commercializing some of these products, being able to replace each and every packaged food in a grocery store with something that is first and foremost plant-based, which is much better for the future health of the planet. And I think health and sustainability are very intertwined. I mean, you can't talk about public health without thinking about food security. And well, if anyone does any research about uh, factory farming and the environment, we will be in a food insecure future if we continue eating um, meat and dairy and eggs at the rate at which we do today. So which is why another reason I'm such a big proponent of the industry, and I mean by that the plant-based food industry, mm-hmm. um, and of course the time and when we do have cultured meat and that's at a price point people can afford, sure, I'll be I'll be on board with that as well. Because I feel that is able to give people the food that they're already used to eating, but offer them something that is just better at the same price point. It's an easy way for us to penetrate. And then by doing that, we'll reduce the cost of, you know, hopefully be able to shift some of these subsidies that today go to industrialized meat um, because the plant-based food industry will have a voice in uh, in D.C., will have enough money and will be owned by enough big food companies mm-hmm. where now there'll be enough pressure to focus on subsidizing food for humans versus food that is now fed to animals. Yeah, I think we're going to see that happening when, you know, these huge uh, agricultural entities are understanding that plant-based is the future. And the ones that are going to survive are the ones that are investing in that space now. And the ones that are digging in their heels and, and you know, holding on to, um, you know, traditional notions of factory farming are the ones that are going to go the way of the dodo. Um, and I think scale will bring, you know, price points and affordability to these communities. But we also need the education piece mm-hmm. as well. You know, there's just a lot of people that don't care. You know, it's yeah. like, what's the best diet for them? The best diet for them is the one that's, you know, is $4 at McDonald's because that's all they can afford, right? Mm-hmm. And until you provide them with healthy alternatives at, at a cost point that is comparable to what they're used to spending at Hardee's or wherever, mm-hmm. um, we're going to lose the war. Yeah. So I'm, I really think we should push for the get people to eat 80% whole food plant-based to the extent they can. And we grow this industry to be... Uh, big enough where they're able to provide products everywhere. You go to McDonald's or a plant-based version of McDonald's or at least enough plant-based options uh, at a place like that, we're going to make progress. And and McDonald's of course, already has like they're testing out their McVegan mm-hmm. burger. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a contingent of the vegan community that is aghast at that. Like, yeah. how dare they? But it's I don't understand that. It's like McDonald's yeah. isn't going away. You got to find a way to work within the system to create change and celebrate those changes. And that's ultimately the most expeditious way to impact culture in the most profound manner. Yeah, I'm, that's really well put. Um, I've got, you know, as we wrap this up, I've got one forward, really forward-looking question for you. Um, if you can look ahead and I give the year 2050 as my, as my as the point where I think we hopefully are going to be in a great place or we're going to be totally screwed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I asked this of all my guests, what is your sort of vision for our food system in 2050 if we get it right? 
if we get it right? Um, that's a great question. Well, I think by 2050, that's probably um, enough decades into the future where um, clean meat, culture, cultured meat, um, will be readily available and at a price point, which holds the potential to completely eradicate um, livestock agriculture. I think it will always exist. It'll exist in a more more of a cottage, you know, industry as opposed to these CAFO farms and mm-hmm. what we're seeing now. And I think the impact of of just transcending that broken model will just be tremendous. Like now, what do we do with all that land? How can we use that in a more productive way to feed the planet, to restore our soil? Um, so I think that is going to be huge. Um, we're seeing the transition to electric, you know, vehicles and mm-hmm. self-driving cars, which will have, you know, profound benefits for, uh, the environments as well. So, um, that's the optimistic perspective. And I think that's very real. And I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's totally doable. And I think the work that, uh, you and others are doing today is what's going to get us to that future. So, Rich Roll, once again, thank you so much for being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. This has been an absolute pleasure to sit down with you and talk about this. I can I can talk for hours, um, so I'm definitely going to have you back at some point. But uh, I look at this as being a start of, a, of, of many conversations that we're going to have. And uh, I look forward to seeing what's next with you and Julie. Um, and hopefully you become part of this great big movement to transform our food system. Yeah, well, I love the work that you're doing. It's inspirational, and uh, I wish you well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Peace. (laughs) Plants. Plants. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nils Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.